You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. Easier said than done. We've all heard phrases like these before and nobody questions the point of those phrases. We all tend to agree that in most cases, according to conventional wisdom, it is easier for us to say stuff than to do stuff. And I think the writer of Hebrews would also agree with that, which is why in Hebrews 11, when he wants to show us what real faith looks like in the example of the Old Testament saints, he does not give us a list of quotes that they said, but he describes things they did. He he tells us in Hebrews 11 about actions that these Old Testament saints carried out. And beginning in verse 4, he's just working his way through the Old Testament storyline. If you remember a few weeks ago, he starts with Abel, and then Enoch, and then Noah, and then he gives extended attention to Abraham, which we saw last week. And it was, you know, the writer, when he does this, he doesn't mention everybody he could, and he, he doesn't say everything about those that he does mention, but he, he hits the high points. And his main message is the same. He's saying to us, this is how faith looks. Faith has consequences. And I think that we understand this. This is not controversial. We understand what he's saying. We get it. It's intuitive to us. I think a couple of weeks ago, um, when we first got into Hebrews 11, I was talking with someone after the service um, about Hebrews 11. And he said, the examples of faith that we see in this chapter, they make me want to do something. And I just think that is like the bullseye sentiment that we should have when we read this chapter. I think that the writer of Hebrews would hear that and he would say, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. And I think that's especially the case when it comes to our passage today in chapter 11, verses 23 to 31. This section today focuses in on Moses. And so in terms of the structure of this text, uh, today's passage, there, there are seven total examples from the Moses generation, just like there were last week, we saw seven total examples from the Abraham generation, the passage just before it. If you look back there at Abraham, we see that there are four examples of Abraham connected directly to Abraham. Then there are three examples of people who come after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Well, in today's passage, the writer, he's running that same four three. There are four examples connected directly to Moses. Then there are three examples of those who came after, the people who crossed the Red Sea, verse 29, the, the people who marched around Jericho, verse 30, And then there's Rahab who hid the Hebrew spies in verse 31. And there is a lot of ground covered there in the Old Testament storyline. There's a lot that we could talk about. But what I'd like for us to do this morning is to really just take this focus on Moses and focus in on Moses even more. I want us to focus in on one example from the life of Moses in verses 24 to 26. And so I just want to read these verses to you again. I want you to hear it again. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to look at these verses with me and just track here, chapter 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so now within this this focus on Moses, I want to tell you three observations of his faith here that I think are especially relevant for our church. There are three things here I want us to see in how Moses displays his faith. Moses displays his faith by, number one, a deliberate decision. Number two, a costly association. And number three, a peculiar valuation. Deliberate decision, costly association, peculiar valuation. That's the outline for the sermon. And before we dig in, I want to just stop for a second and pray again and ask for God's help. So Father in heaven, we recognize in this moment by your grace alone, because of your providence, we are here, here now with your holy scriptures open before us. And so we ask, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Moses displays his faith by, number one, a deliberate decision. We see this right away in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, which might be an odd thing to say, right? It makes more sense when you contrast it to verse 23, which starts this way. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born. So these are different times in the life of Moses. There's baby Moses in verse 23, little Moses. Then there's grown up Moses in verse 24. And the writer of Hebrews points out examples of faith in both of these times of Moses' life. But it's important that, that we notice in verse 23 that it's not really the faith of Moses that's on display. But in verse 23, it's the faith of his parents. I want you to see this. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So Moses we'd agree, is entirely passive here. The being hidden was not his idea, right? Some of you have probably seen the, the, it's the animated movie, uh, Boss Baby, The Boss Baby. Anybody seen that movie before? It's a good movie, y'all. Come on. It's, it's a funny movie and it has some meaningful moments to it. And if, I'll tell you about it if you're not seen it. Central to the whole plot of this movie. Some of y'all have seen it, you just don't want to admit it, okay? So uh, you're going to want to see it. Okay, the, the central to the whole plot of the movie is that there's this, there's this newborn baby who acts like a normal baby when adults are around. But when the adults are gone, he acts like an adult, but he's a baby. And that's funny, right? That's, that's the, 
that's the point. Like the, the baby, he's been sent into this family from this higher uh, unknown organization. And as a newborn, he knows right away that he has a certain mission to accomplish. And, and what makes the movie funny is that it's the whole idea of this baby who thinks and acts like an adult. That's just silly. We know that's silly. It's all pretend because in real life, and you know this, in real life, babies are cute, but they're not that smart. That's, that's why you have to baby-proof your house, right? That's why you have to tell babies not to eat dirt and other things like that, right? They, you have to explain, you have to teach them how to, how to get along in the world. Babies can only do baby things, including baby Moses. All right, I just want to be clear about that. Baby Moses did not hide himself. Baby Moses did not have faith to not fear Pharaoh. That was his parents, okay? But when Moses was grown up, that's different. Grown-up Moses has agency. Grown-up Moses is able to do things on his own, including to have his own faith. His own faith that he himself displays. That's what we see in verse 24. Verse 24 is the faith of grown-up Moses himself, not his parents. Now, why is that relevant for our church? Well, it's because we have a lot of kids in our church. Like, I think we have thousands of kids in this church, (laughs) right? And you know what? We need more. We want more, okay? We, 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 want, we have so many kids, and there's a, 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 you know, a range of, of ages. We have, we have newborn babies um, and a lot of younger kids all the way up through middle school and through high school. And in this moment of our service, a lot of kids are in child care. But there's also, in this room, there's kids here. And so if you're a kid in this room, I want to say something to you for just a minute, okay? So all, all kids, middle school, high school, if you're a kid in the room, I'm speaking directly to you. So listen up for a minute, okay? One thing that I'm pretty sure about, about all of you kids, one thing that you guys all have in common is that your parents have faith, okay? In fact, the faith of your parents is a big reason why you're here right now. Why are you here hearing me say this? That doesn't mean that you don't have faith yourself. Many of you do have faith. Many of you have been baptized at this church based upon the profession of your faith. But still as kids, as, as tweens and as teens and whatever, you live at home under the authority of your parents. And a lot of your faith right now is rightly influenced by them. That's the way it should be. But see, here's what happens. As you get older, kids, and as you become more independent, eventually you're going to come to a time when you make your own decisions about life and all of this. That make sense? You're going to make your own decisions about all of this. 
You will no longer be passive in your faith, but by your faith, you will make deliberate decisions like Moses did. Grown up Moses in verse 24 is refusing one thing and choosing another. And all the kids in this room, one day you're gonna do the same. And so I wanna tell you something here that I, I hope you never forget, all right? So really listen, up. I won't never forget what I'm gonna say here. The, the, the two most powerful words that you have are yes and no. Kids, y'all get that? The two most powerful words you have are yes and no. And your life in large part is going to be the outcome of how you use those words. What you say yes to and what you say no to will form you into the person you become. And as Christians, we say yes and no by faith. As grown-ups, starting where you are now as you get into adulthood, by faith, I'm exhorting you to make deliberate decisions that display your faith in Jesus. Remember that Jesus loves you and make deliberate decisions by faith in him. We see the faith of Moses do that here in verse 24, which meant for him, that deliberate decision meant for him, number two, a costly association. Verse 24. By faith, when Moses was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, in order for this to make sense to us, we, we have to know a little bit about the story of Moses. And so I know it's been a little while since we've all been in the book of Exodus together. And so I want to give you a little refresher here on the book of Exodus. When the book of Exodus opens, the very beginning, Exodus chapter 1, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt and the number of, of, of the people continues to multiply and spread. It spreads so much that uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt is threatened by this increasing number of the Hebrews. And so he puts a death warrant on all the Hebrew male children. And he tells all of his people to throw the Hebrew sons into the Nile River so that they drown. And well, Moses' parents in, Hebrews, in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 2, they defy Pharaoh. They, they hid Moses for three months, and then they built Moses a little raft. And so rather than throw him into the river, they floated him down the river in this raft and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And when she saw him, she took pity on him and she drew him out of the Nile River. This is an amazing story in the book of Exodus, layers of meaning, but I want to just keep it short here for now. Okay, what ends up happening is Pharaoh's daughter ends up adopting Moses. Moses becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And, and we could imagine that being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, being the grandson of Pharaoh, it, it, it had its perks, right? We can imagine this. 
Note the parallel in verse 24, the parallel between being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. You see how they, they go together. Moses would have grown up in a palace. Most likely, Moses literally would have had a silver spoon in his mouth. He would have had the best education possible. Moses became, we know the Bible tells us, he became mighty in word and deed growing up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So we can imagine that Moses, the older that he got, he would have been afforded pretty much whatever he wanted. He would have had easy access to the fleeting pleasures of sin. But look what the writer of Hebrews says. Instead of all that, Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Now, if you have the book of Exodus in mind, you might be thinking, when exactly did that happen? Like, when did Moses make that choice to be mistreated with God's people? Well, I'm happy to tell you that I'm about 99% sure that it happened in Exodus chapter 2 when Moses defended one of the Hebrew slaves who was being beaten by an Egyptian. You guys remember this part of this story in Exodus? This is a really important part in Exodus. Um, Moses killed an Egyptian who was beating up on a Hebrew slave. This is, a, this is really important for the whole story. This is what made Moses have to flee Egypt. Well, if we go back to this story, if we go back to the book of Exodus in chapter two to read this story, that story comes right after the birth story of Moses. Listen to how the story starts in Exodus chapter two, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And that's when he saw the incident. Now in the Septuagint, which we've talked about, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word there for grown up in Exodus 2.11 is the same word in Hebrews 11.24. So what's going on in Exodus 2 is that when Moses went out to his people, presumably he went out from the palace. He left the Egyptian palace and he went down to the streets where his people were burdened. And so see what's happening here is that already in Exodus 2, an association is happening just by Moses being there. But when he saw the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, that became a fork in the road for Moses. The question was, who is he? Who am I? Is he an Egyptian, Pharaoh's grandson? Or is he one of the Hebrews? Is he with the powerful and the opulent and the movers and shakers of the day? Or is he with the slaves, the carry your lunch pail to work mistreated 
Hebrews. Is Moses with the Egyptians and all their drip? Or is he with the insulted people of God? He chose the people of God. He avenged his fellow Hebrew, making that choice, which in Acts chapter 7, this is amazing, in the famous speech that the deacon Stephen gives in Acts chapter 7, he said that Moses thought that him doing that would make the Hebrews know that he was there to save them. So, so th this moment in Exodus 2 is a watershed moment for Moses. He associated himself with the people of God, not with the Egyptians, and it cost him. It cost him greatly. He had to flee the palace. He had to live in exile for 40 years until he saw the burning bush. Moses chose to associate with the people of God and he paid a high price. What kind of price do you think you'd be willing to pay? I want us to think about this for a minute. Do you think that you would still associate with, with Christians? Or, or, or just to get more, make it more practical here, do you think that you would still associate with this local church if it cost you more than it currently does? Well, how, how much is too much? What cost is too high? There's an incredible character in uh, the book Pilgrim's Progress that I want to tell you about, um, Mr. Byens. Mr. Byens is a character that Christian and Hopeful meet as really as soon as they become friends. And as they're talking to him right away, they, they get kind of put off by some of the things that he's saying. And so they're trying to figure out who he is. So they're asking him more questions about where he's from and how he understands life. And, and he admits in this conversation, he says that he's not as strict as other pilgrims are. And he says that basically he operates by, by two principles. And when he, when he explains this, he says he's, he's speaking for himself and for all of his relatives. And he names his relatives, Mr. Smoothman, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, and Mr. Two Tongues, okay? You gotta love John Bunyan, right? I mean, putting the ball on the tee for us, okay? And, it, and this, is what, this is what Mr. Byens says. He explains, we, we, he says, we operate by these two principles. He says, quote, first, we never strive against wind and tide. Secondly, we are always most zealous when religion goes in his silver slippers. We love much to walk with him in the street if the sun shines and the people applaud him. In other words, Mr. Byens is the epitome of what you might call a fair weather Christian. He only acts like a Christian, wants to be known as a Christian when it's easy. He, he wants to be a Christian when the cost is very low and the direct benefit is very high. 
I think this character, although we read about him written in the 1600s, this character is super relevant for us today because we live in a unique time in our nation's history. We live in what's been called the negative world. The negative world is the idea that since around 2014, American society at large has come to have a negative view of Christianity. In other words, especially in the higher ranks of society, um, among the educated, in a lot of places where where y'all work, associating with Christians is a social negative. Christian morality is despised and mocked, often called bigotry, no matter how kind we try to explain it. To be clear, there, there, are, there certainly are other places in the world where it is harder to be a Christian, okay? But within our own nation's history, for the first time in our history, claiming to be a Christian is not a social benefit. It comes with a cost. And there's a correlation here to what's been called the great de-churching. Okay, there's a study that has recently, uh, recently been published that reports that fewer Americans go to church today than at any other point in our nation's history. The study claims that around 40 million American adults used to be part of a church, but they have now stopped their involvement. And there are several theories as to why that's the case. And one of the theories is that it costs more. Active faith, regular Christian rhythms and life, being involved in a local church costs more today than it used to. And for Mr. Buy-ins and for those like him, The cost is too much. Well, Moses knew what it was going to cost him. And still by faith, he chose to associate with the people of God. Talk is cheap. The cost is in the action. That's what that means. Moses acted. He chose actively the cost of association. So we need to to remember... When the writer of Hebrews is saying all this, he, he knows very well what these early Christians are dealing with. A few weeks ago, we saw in chapter 10 that the, the writer is encouraging these early Christians in their faith by telling to, to, he, he tells them to recall what they've already endured. He's encouraging their endurance by faith. He says, hey, just, just take note of what you've already come through. Already, he says, chapter 10, verse 33, they have been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. The writer of Hebrews says that in chapter 10, verse 33. And so now in chapter 11, he wants these first hearers to make the connection. What's happened is that they have actually shown the same kind of faith that Moses showed. Can can you imagine For these first readers, can you imagine anything more encouraging for them 
than for the writer of Hebrews to say to them, you have faith like Moses. You have already done what Moses did. That's what he's saying to them. They would have heard, verse 24 here, they would have heard Moses, they would have heard the writer say that about Moses and they would have thought, hey, we've done that. That's us. And I want you to know that the same applies for us today. What we read about here, what we read about Moses, what our early Christian ancestors understood and displayed, this is in the, the spiritual genetics of our faith. I want you to know, church, that true faith will endure whatever the cost. And I could say to you, consider what you've already endured. Consider what you've already come through. Turn up the heat, right? Whatever the cost, come what may, true faith will be displayed. And that's the second thing to see. Moses displayed his faith by deliberate decision that meant a costly association because number three, it was a peculiar valuation. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now the first question here is how is this verse, how is verse 26 connected to verse 25? We know there's, there's some kind of connection here because this is the same train of thought. Verse 25 says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God to, to, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, the first verb there in verse 26 is meant to tell us the reason that Moses made that choice. Verse 26 says that Moses chose to be mistreated with God's people because, because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses considered the reproach of Christ more valuable. That's why he made the choice he did. We can see this in the text, but we need to ask what exactly, what, what is the reproach of Christ? Is the writer of Hebrews saying that in Exodus 2, Moses actually knew about the future sufferings of the Messiah. And in, in Exodus 2, he made a cautious decision to align himself with that suffering. Is the writer saying that? Sort of. Okay. I want, to, I want to show you, track with me here. Okay. I want to show you this. I want you to see first here the connection in the language between the mistreatment of the people of God, verse 25, the mistreatment of the people of God and the reproach of Christ in verse 26. Do you guys see how those two phrases are parallel to each other? If, if, we, look at the if we look at these two verses beside each other, it seems like the mistreatment of God's people and the reproach of Christ are talking about the same thing. It's the same package. Do you guys see that in those two verses beside 24 and 25? Now, there's a connection there, but we need to ask, where does that come from? How do, why do they parallel each other? Well, a lot of times in the Bible, God's people and God's Messiah are described as having solidarity. God's Messiah takes on the identity of God's people. Now we know that Jesus 
did that ultimately on the cross as our substitute, right? We also know that Jesus, at, at clear points throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus also did that. And, and we actually see this hinted at in the Old Testament, okay? The solidarity between God's people and God's Messiah, we see it in the Old Testament, Psalm 89. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Psalm 89, if you can. Uh, scroll there, flip there, go there. I want you to see this. Psalm 89, verse 50. Okay, now in Psalm 89, I'm going to read two verses, 89, 50, and 51. Look at this if you can. Psalm 89, 50 says, Remember, O Lord, your, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed Messiah. So there's a parallel here, a parallel between the servants of God and the anointed of God. God's people and God's Messiah are paralleled. What is said of God's people in Psalm 89 is said of God's Messiah, they're both mocked. You guys see that in Psalm 89? Now, listen to these verses in the Septuagint. Again, this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is what the writer of Hebrews would have read. Psalm 89, in the Septuagint, he would have read, Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, which I have borne in my bosom, even the reproach of many nations with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached your Christ. The parallel is still there. There's a parallel between God's people and God's Messiah. And in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word for mock is translated into the Greek as reproach. Same idea. So God's people and God's Messiah are both reproached. And the Greek word there for reproach in Psalm 89 is the exact same word the writer of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 11:26 when he says the reproach of Christ. The writer of Hebrews has Psalm 89 in mind as he's writing Hebrews 11. And so is he saying that Moses was thinking about the reproach of God's people or the reproach of Christ himself? The answer is yes. When Moses chose solidarity with God's people in their reproach, he also chose solidarity with Christ in his reproach because it's the same reproach. The reproach and insults and ridicule of Christ on behalf of his people is reproach, insults, and ridicule that we choose when we bear his name. And that reproach still exists today. It does. A lot of you guys know Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is one of the most influential men in the world because he has a podcast 
that literally millions of men listened to. They listened to him on all kinds of things. And, and routinely, he insults Christianity. Several different times, Rogan has said that Christianity is the easiest of all religions to mock. He, he says that Christianity is reproachable. And he does. The reproach of Christ is still a thing today. Now, does that make us move toward Jesus or shy away from him? When you hear the insult, when you hear the mocking of Jesus and of our faith, do you move toward Jesus or do you kind of step back? Uh, well, see, Moses, <laughs> he didn't, <laughs> Moses didn't just move toward the reproach, but he said that this reproach of Christ is better, better than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of Christ is more valuable than the treasures of Egypt. And that's a peculiar valuation. It's odd, right? Because reproach, insult, suffering, culminating in a shameful execution on a Roman cross. How is that better than anything? Like, I want nothing to do with that, man. Like, get me away from that, right? We don't want anything to do. This is hard. This is horrible. That kind of reproach, that kind of insult. We would, we would rather, we would, we would rather go through anything than to go through that. And yet Moses, what Moses did is Moses looked at that. Moses looked at that reproach and the treasures of Egypt, and Moses said, "Give me the reproach, man. Give me the reproach." of Christ, far be it from me to boast except in the reproach of Christ by which the world and all its treasure has been crucified to me and I to the world. The reproach of Christ is a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But for me, for Moses, and for those who have faith like Moses, the reproach of Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd, I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And that only makes sense. It only makes sense when we, like Moses, by faith, look to the reward. Verse 26. See, the reward is future and eternal. It's not immediate and temporal. This is when we have the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Unlike, contrary to 
the fleeting pleasures of Egypt, we must see him who for now is invisible to us, but who one day we will see face to face. One day, church, one day we will be looking at Jesus. We will stand before him. We will see him. We will look at Jesus in everything. Everything will have been worth it. That's what brings us to the table. We display our faith in Jesus, not only with our words, but with our actions. And the same could be said of God's love for us. The Bible says that God shows, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were most unlovable, God acted. He acted to show us his love. And that's what we remember at this table. The bread at this table represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents the shed blood of Jesus. And together, the the bread and the cup remind us of the death of Jesus for us. The ultimate action of God's love. And this morning, if you're here and you receive that love... If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to display your faith by sharing in this meal. We invite you to eat and to drink with us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us eat and drink together now and give thanks to Jesus Christ. We're gonna serve the bread first. You can just hold it. I'll come back up. We'll eat the bread all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.